All right, y'all, welcome back. We can start our lesson on virtuous leadership. Um, But I want to let you know I'm going to post something a little bit later on that deals with this question of lying in the catechism, uh, particularly in regards to people and the right they might or might not have to the truth, uh, if we wanted to have a a bigger discussion of that later. Um, What I want to do is sort of take what we've learned about virtue so far and focus it in on the virtuous man, but in particular, the virtuous leader. Uh, This idea of leadership is something that for me is important, and I know for a lot of seminary benefactors too, because priests are going to be leaders. You can assume that all of you are on the track to hopefully become a pastor. I hate to say that bishops don't want to ordain priests. They want to ordain priests to become a pastor. Um, But the reality is, even if you're not a pastor, because of the nature of the collar that you have and the office that you hold, people are going to look to you as a leader. And so, gosh, there's so much on leadership. You could probably even say that almost all of human and priestly formation is about being a, a Christian leader, a virtuous leader. And there's no way that I think I can cover everything in simply one class. I do want to encourage you, though, the book that I had recommended, uh, Alexander Havard's Virtuous Leadership. Another one that I'm going to reference is Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. She's the one that we looked at when it came to shame and and vulnerability. Also, there's a document that I can share with you from the, uh, there's a lot of business leadership. The one about, I think it has the 14 qualities of great business leaders from Marvin Bauer. But I really want to to encourage, I posted it yesterday, uh, Dr. Bob Schutz done on that Restoring the Glory podcast, a series on leadership. Uh, In this particular interview with Archbishop Sample of Portland, which is fantastic. Uh, that I really would suggest over the course of the summer, y'all take time to listen to that. And so we're going to look at some examples of virtuous leadership. Uh, Particularly, I'm going to reveal my example that I've been talking about and see how many of you may have guessed it. Um, This, in a certain sense, I guess, can tie into our discussion about trust and heroes. uh, Because we want to look at not just priests, but this idea of the role of the priest in the church, and as we've seen, there's so much trust and respect that has been lost uh, for leaders of the church, priests, bishops, clerics, as a result of the scandal. Um, the sex scandal, yes, but more importantly, the abuse of power in the church. And it's led to, along with other elements, this rejection of patriarchy, although I think it really properly is a rejection of virarchy. Patriarchy is a rejection of fathers. Virarchy is a rejection of men. Um, Ideally, if there were good fathers, maybe there wouldn't be as much of a rejection as we have against patriarchy. Um, So it goes back to the question we had from last week. When, When it seems that a generation doesn't trust people and they've lost the trust in institutions and individuals, how do we build up trust? How do we as as future leaders of the church or present leaders of the church build up trust as a man, as a priest, as a pastor, as a leader? Because as a priest, as your ordination, you are going to be given power. You are going to have office. Uh, How do you use that authority, that power that comes with your office uh, prudently, wisely, and responsibly? Because we do. We need to work as a church and as individuals to build up trust. So what I want to do and again, we could be here for a whole semester about what qualities of true leaders are. Uh, give you some resources, but I'm going to really want to highlight seven. And of course, these seven, though, I think you could look under it and you can see other virtues that are connected to it. Some are more traditional. Some you are not going to be surprised at at all, uh, but some may be a bit newer. And the first one I want to look at is really connected to justice. How do we know who the just man is? How do we know uh, who this fair individual is? And I think it's the virtue of trustworthiness. Uh, 
Um, you can read any leadership literature, and they're going to say universally one of the most important human virtuous traits is trustworthiness, that this individual does not lie. They tell the truth. They're a man or woman of their word. They can be trusted. And I really do think most people can sniff out BS. Um, are you a trustworthy individual? Would you trust this person with a secret? Would you trust this person with a possession of yours? Would you trust this person with your life? Because it also brings up the question, which we're not going to address here necessarily, how is trust built up? Um, if this person is trustworthy, how do I know they're trustworthy? It's not going to be from one interaction, but it's going to become, I think, through a series of ongoing smaller interactions that I know that this is a person I can trust. Not a stranger, but someone that you know. Um, and, and really, this value of trustworthiness comes, yes, on a daily basis. I can trust them in small details. But when the time of crisis comes, is this a person that I would trust with my life? One of the, the best compliments that I ever got as a priest uh, was some college students were talking about if the zombie apocalypse would come, who would the person, the one person that they would want uh, with them? And one of them said they would want me because uh, they trusted me. I said, I, I, you crazy. I want the guy with about seven or eight MR, uh, 15, AR-15s and has a stash of hand grenades. That's the dude I would want. But uh, I, was, I was complimented. I felt good uh, about that. So it's trustworthiness. And I think that's the, that's the way you can really sense justice. Is this person a just person? Because that person is going to tell you the truth. They're going to treat you fairly. They are trustworthy. They're not going to put that big old dagger in your back. The second one is, uh, I guess, a bit more complex. And I, I'm going to call, so again, you can say trustworthiness is a virtue. I'm going to try to, I can try to put all these as types of virtues. This next one is, again, it's kind of an amalgam of virtues. I'm going to call it confident self-awareness. You can call it self-knowledge. Uh, but it's it's a habit there there because as we as humans we grow as leaders we grow we we learn from our mistakes uh, and so this is a, a confident self awareness that grows over time and so I think you can say that it is habitual and it's knowing our own personality knowing our own temperament knowing uh, I guess you could say our our our, our, our disposition. And there are all kinds of tools for this today. Uh, none are comprehensive, and you don't want to reduce someone to, well, they got this in this personality test, that's who they are. Because obviously, we're fluid and we can change and adapt. Um, but they can give us useful insights. Um, I, I, I love to ask people what their Myers-Briggs is, um, which we'll mention in a second here. Uh, some people like the Enneagram, uh, even though... There are some questions about where the Enneagram comes from. The Clifton Strengths Finders, uh, Patrick Lencioni's Working Genius. One of my favorite is the HBDI, the Herman Brain Diversity Inventory, uh, which I can explain to you a little bit later. Uh, and then I think it's at St. Catherine Institute, the Spiritual Gift Inventory. So look, look uh, here's an ISFJ. I am an INFJ. Which is important that you mention that, though. Um, most priests, and I don't know, I'd like to see a study of this. Most priests tend to be introverts. Uh, I think most of them fall into ISTJ or INTJ, actually. And so there's something about this that normally we live in a culture where the extroverted leader is the, the hero. Everyone loves the extrovert. Well, I don't know. I'm sure most of you here probably are introverts. Um, maybe not. Uh, and so you need to learn to lead as an introvert. There's a great book by Susan Cain that was published about seven years ago called Quiet. Uh, and it's about the sort of the science of introversion. And they have a good section about how introverts can lead. Um, another good thing about this knowing your personality is how you act under stress or pressure. It's that HBDI test that I took that really changed my leadership uh, in, in within my, my team. 
uh, in the parish, uh, my employees, what it does is that you take this online test and you have to have someone pay for it, you have to have a company pay for it, You're, like if you belong to a company, um, where it'll evaluate your, your thinking according to four different quadrants. One is big picture, across from it is detail-oriented. I think I may have mentioned this. The other is relational, and across from that is um, uh, uh, scheduling and um, fin- I mean finances, numbers and stuff. And so you take it, and what it will do is it will show you sort of where your ease of operation is. Uh, I have a fairly balanced one, but I tend to be more towards big picture, and also towards uh, relational, both of those there. Um, but what's interesting is it also talks about what you become when you're stressed, uh, because our leadership styles can change, our, our dispositions can change. What I do is I shift. Uh, when I'm stressed, I don't care how your feelings are. I don't care what your big ideas are. I want to see the schedule. I want to see the bottom line. And I can become very unpleasant. I'm good at crisis management, but I'm not necessarily good at being nice to you while I'm crisis managing. Uh, And what happens is is when you get to see how everyone else works, particularly under stress, there are some people who double down. If they're already a detailed person, they're going to become much more detailed. And the person who's big picture, and when they hit each other when they're stressed, uh, it can get very ugly. And so we have to learn, I guess as a just individual, as a leader, to be able to, um, to, to, to cooperate uh, with others uh, and how they and how they work, but with that and it's sort of tied to it, knowing your strengths and weaknesses. This is really kind of where that Clifton Strength Finder may come in, and and I, I've learned a lot from that. And one thing that I really liked is a little phrase that they had in there that we need to play to our strengths and navigate our weaknesses. Not only as leaders, but as humans. I see so many people who you know they look at their primary fault or they look at the things they're doing wrong in the moral life or in the spiritual life, and they obsessively focus over this, and they just get discouraged because they can never overcome it. And and the analogy I use, I may have used it in class before, it's like Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but terrible free throw shooter. And so would it have been wise for the coach to say, Shaquille, I want you to go practice five hours a day throwing free throws. No, this is just going to be the thorn in his side. And so what he's going to have to do, he needs to practice on it. I'm not saying that you ignore it, but he needs to navigate his weaknesses. Try not to get fouled so that you don't have to go up to the line to shoot. But play to your strengths. You know, use your body, block people out, uh, sort of, you know, play post, whatever. This is what we need to do in our own lives. Some of us are going to have those weaknesses that are not going away. You may get better by them by 5% or 3%. Learn how to navigate them. And so if you realize you snap at people when you're under stress, try not to get stressed. Uh, And that way we can play to our strengths. Um, Also with that, it comes to this knowledge, the self-knowledge of knowing when you were not competent in a certain area. A good leader will know that. This is not my gift. I'm going to hand it off to somebody else. Um, and this is a certain humility, but it, it comes of a self-awareness and this on a human level, but also the self-awareness of knowing our own sinfulness, uh, being able to understand that, uh, to be grounded in God's mercy and our own identity. But that's the most important of self-awareness. And you're not going to be surprised going back to our I fundamental identity as leaders to lead from our identity as beloved sons and confident in the Father's love for us and what the, 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 the authority that he's entrusted us with. The worst thing for a leader is one who is not confident in their self-awareness and is leading out of their insecurity. It is a person, it is a priest who is a boss rather than a leader. Uh, there's someone who hasn't dealt with their crap and maybe they're believing lies about themselves, they've got paralysis analysis, they're foolhardy in their decision. Uh, they have imposter syndrome where they think that they're, they're putting off to someone who they're not. So there's a deep insecurity. But what I find is, is they begin to minister or lead out of that. Uh, and it becomes a need for attention or affirmation. Um, they're, they're taking instead of giving. 
And so often there can be some anger, abuse of power, control there, all ways to compensate for their insecurity, comparing themselves to others. We, we don't need leaders like that, particularly in the church. Uh, they get us into a lot of trouble. We're going to realize, hey, I may be feeling insecure today. I'm struggling with this. That's where the self-awareness comes in and giving it over the Lord, going seeking counseling if you need. The leader has to be confident as a leader, not prideful, but confident in who they are. Jesus was a leader because he was confident in his sonship. He knew the authority he had been given to him by the Father. He knew his mission, that he was sent. He knew what he was there to do. And thus, he was able to achieve it and to be able to rejoice, to rejoice uh, in the gift of his identity in the Father. And so that person who has that confident self-awareness is also going to be one who's not angry all the time, who has a joyful spirit. And they're also going to be able to do probably one of the most important things that leaders do is to encourage others and help them know their identity, to mediate the love of the Father, to help them see themselves as God sees them, to help them step up, uh, to, to, see, to, be, to become confident. Uh, the person who is confident is going to breed confidence in others, not pride, not haughtiness, but genuine confidence. And to do this, to have this self-awareness, means you're going to have to have time for silence and self-reflection. If we're too distracted all the time, if there's so much noise, if we're out being busy, which is often a way to just fulfill our own lack, then you're not going to be able to do that, to have the reflection, to be able to see how you succeeded or failed, where you can grow, how the Lord has loved you. Uh, so there needs that time for silence. You can even, we're going to talk about the monastic warrior. And in doing so, uh, that ex the daily exam, if you want to call it, uh, leads to humility, grounded in reality. You know who you are, you know what you're capable of, and you know that ultimately that discrepancy, as we talked about, between your office as a priest and as who you are, and to allow the Lord's grace to really make that up. Number three, and this is, again, kind of a, a virtue, a description. I think the virtuous leader, besides having that confident self-knowledge and being trustworthy, is a man of action, or a woman, of action and accountability. You could basically say that I'm just sort of uh, pushing prudence here. But not just the deliberation, as important as that is, but acting. It has to culminate in acting. Can't have paralysis analysis. You can't just be navel gazing. Uh, there, there, there can be prudence to gather the information. But in more than that, it's going to take initiative. The person who is the leader of action and accountability is one who is willing to take initiative, who's not waiting for others to act. Uh, waiting for others to follow. You've got to be able to take command sometimes from your boss, but you're going to have to be able to take initiative and do so in a decisive manner. Uh, not in a prideful manner, but a decisive manner to make clear and rational decisions, particularly under pressure, particularly tough decisions uh, to resolve conflicts, to move forward in a program in the parish, whatever it is, and realizing that it may fail. And as a result, you're going to take a responsibility for your actions. That's accountability. A, a, a true leader never blames others. Or will always be willing to say, yeah, I know this action has impacted others. I feel terrible about it. I take responsibility. Um, to see the, the leader or the priest who's always, well, it's the parishioner's fault or it's that person's fault or it's the bishop's fault. It may very well be, but you're going to analyze yourself to say, all right, what part did I play in this? Uh, the person who's constantly blaming others and shifting blame is, is someone who's operating out of their own insecurity. And of course, this is going to take work uh, to, to be prudent, to be courageous, to, to take those actions, to learn to be decisive. Discipline, asceticism, uh, preparation and planning, patience, long suffering, so that we have these things necessary when we do face a crisis. Uh, and so, yeah, in a certain sense, as I said, the virtuous leader brings in all of the other traits and has to have them all. And I think this is really where prudence and maybe courage comes in. But the one that I think today 
um, most people will say uh, that is the most important, and it can be phrased in different ways. Um, you can call it humanness. You can call it uh, genuineness. But I think the best word, and I'm going to take it from Brene Brown, is vulnerability. Um, if, I'd really encourage you to read her book, Dare to Lead. But on the, the, the page of readings, I put a one-page PDF from her book called, which is the comparison between daring leadership and armored leadership. Daring versus armored. Daring means vulnerable leadership. Armored is, you know, David putting all the armor to be able to lead. Uh, again, if you read the book, she's, she advocates boundaries. She's not advocating oversharing. But there, there means to be, in part of that self-awareness of knowing our strengths and weaknesses, knowing our own woundedness, knowing our own sinfulness, knowing our own weakness, and admitting this, and how the things in our past, and let's say our family of origins, have led us to become um, the leaders that we are today, that maybe it makes us uh, not good at taking criticism, rushing headlong into something. Where did this comes from? But, and so this vulnerability of admitting these things about ourselves, of doing the work necessary. So yeah, so it's connected to that confident self-awareness. If you're not vulnerable, if every time you're, facing criticism, or if you need to do that deep self-work to know your strengths and your weaknesses, you can't do it because it's too painful, or you're too narcissistic, or you're too interested in other people's business, then there's no way you're going to be a good leader. Confident self-awareness entails a certain vulnerability of being able to look at your own woundedness, but also in taking action. Uh, and that's where that the action and accountability comes in. The person who's vulnerable means you're open to being wounded, vulnus. So it means you're open to taking risks, to failing, and admitting when you fail. Um, you know, particularly as a leader, as a pastor, there have been times when I've maybe made hires that I shouldn't have made. I rushed into it and, and having to say, oh, yeah, I failed. This was a big mistake. Or when you fail in a parish, to be able to admit to people. Um but so often what stops us from, from taking action is the fear of vulnerability. Uh, this is a great quote from St. Therese. How few are those who accept to fail to be weak, to accept to fall to be weak, who are content to find themselves down and out and have others find them in that condition. And so again, it's not only our own failure, but having others see us fail, particularly as a leader. It can be truly, truly humiliating. But in general, though, this vulnerability is just in being human and letting people see you for who you are. Um, you know, this is a challenge that I find, and I may have mentioned it, you know, people think priests and nuns are perfect, that they don't do anything wrong. It's important that they may hold us to a higher standard of behavior, but we're not. We're all in this together. You are just as human as the other person is. And Christ, of course, was too, all, just like us in all things but sin. But what happens is, in, and there are different reasons for this, we often will hide behind the image that we have of what it means to be a priest, of what it means to be a nun, or what it means to be a leader. And a lot of this can, the root can be sort of youth and immaturity. I remember when I was first in seminary, well, this is the idea of the priest I wanted to have. So I spoke in a certain way, I dressed in a certain way, I acted in a certain way. Uh, but as I got older, I realized, well, no, that's, that's just my image of a priest. That's not what a priest really is. And so we can do that. We can focus so much on the exteriors. Um, one of the things that, that I talk about is, is nun talk, N-U-N. Nuns can give you a lot of nun talk. Oh, praise be God. We all love Jesus. Well, sister, tell me how you're doing. Oh, the Lord loves me very much. That's a bunch of nun talk, sister. I, I want to hear how you're doing. Now, my granted, I can't just go to some random nun and act how she's doing. But if we're not really in a safe space able to reveal ourselves, if we're just giving a bunch of pious phrases, it's not going to get us anywhere. Or, or, or the priest who becomes a businessman or a bureaucrat. Um, you know, screw tape talks about this, that, that, that temptation towards bureaucracy. Uh, I really think that this is one of the things that got us into trouble 
a bunch of bishops who were not shepherds, but instead were bureaucrats. Uh, so th- there has to be a healthy transparency. And as a pastor, it's very easy. You can hide in your office. And I've talked about it in my work with college students. I live with them in and out every day for 11 years. I could try to hide, but I really couldn't. If I was in a bad mood, if I was struggling, they could see. And there were certain students who would say, Father, what's going on? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Uh, but probably the biggest way of, of just sort of being human and, and, and having that transparency is making yourself available, being present for people to come in and see you, uh, to be able to express how you're really thinking or feeling, not always holding your cards too close to you. This takes prudence and when and how to be vulnerable. You don't want to overshare. Uh, the leader can't has to keep certain things close to himself. Um, but but in doing so and being honest, yeah, you're leaving yourself open for attack, but you're also leaving yourself open to some great transformation. And, and I've talked about Sister Miriam Hyland before. Sister Miriam, who prob- who people just love, and I've, I've, I know Sister, she and I are friends, and I've seen the effect she's had on so many women uh, through her podcast and whatnot, because she is so honest, talking about her past, uh, her struggles with different things. And she gets a lot of flack from religious sisters and religious leaders. Oh no, Sister, you should be pious and holy and always talking about the rosary. But she talks about her own wounds and her journey for healing. And it opens up the space for others. If, if sisters are going to be vulnerable and honest, they will too. And so um, people will become to be much more honest. And they will also follow. Um, I'm going to open this up. And, and I think, what is a great example of vulnerable leadership? I was reading a book about this the other day. It's St. Paul. We talked about the morality of St. Paul, we could talk, uh, but his, his willingness to say, I got this on in my flesh. I'm not perfect. Sometimes I preach for a long period of time and I'm a terrible preacher and people fall asleep and they fall out of a window and I have to raise them back from the dead. Peter is a vulnerable leadership too, I think. Look at the gospel. All the times that Peter made stupid mistakes, put his foot in his mouth. Peter called him, Jesus called him Satan, but the Lord didn't abandon him. Uh, David, I think also we've already seen kind of that vulnerable leadership. Um, so there are all these different ways, but like be human, let people see you. Um, and it, it takes prudence and maybe you can read some good books, but that list of between daring and armored leadership, I know it when I see it. And I really want to encourage y'all to do some more research in that, but probably one of the, the most vulnerable ways that, uh, we can be, or the the best ways that we can show vulnerability is admitting that we can't do it alone, particularly as a leader, particularly as a priest. There is no way I could run this parish by myself. No way. I don't care what your leadership style is to admit I can't do it alone. I need God's help, but I need the help of others leads to the fourth quality. I think it's being a leader of community, cooperation and collaboration. I don't know if you call it communitarian, collaborator, uh, in relationship to others. You know, we've already talked about the role of the community and the moral life. Uh, but since then, I, I read this book by Father Thomas Dubé called Caring, which the title seems sort of silly. But it's all about authentic biblical community and how quite often the community that we have as parishes and as church and as religious orders is not authentically biblical. Um and one of the things that he'll reiterate in that book is a key to healthy community is good, solid leadership and authority. And look at the early church is that that model where you have the apostles who have the authority and power, but exercise it in a loving and genuine way. And so the true leader is not the boss who is disconnected from everyone. The boss is here and you were here. The true leader, as we're going to see, the true shepherd, is the one who is not above or outside of the group, or even in sense the, the problem of absentee leadership, where I'm just going to have everybody else do the work for me. No, they're there in the middle of it. The leader is there with the people, as we'll see, they're either in the front, behind, or in the middle of. They're the courageous ones. They're the first ones to go over the wall. They're not going to ask anyone to do something that they wouldn't first do themselves. You've heard the phrase, 
they are servant leaders. The value of servant leadership, and there's so many different books you can read on there. Uh, willingness to wash the feet of others, uh, as is priest, to see themselves, their identity in in relationship to their parishioners, to their staff, willing to really truly lay down your life in service. Now, I don't want to say, though, in this being a man of community and collaboration, that you're so present that you become a micromanager. Uh, that is a significant issue. Uh, priests who have these control problems, these control issues, can never find any joy, can never find any happiness, and they have to micromanage. Fathers are fathers to be. Please learn the art of delegation without becoming absentee leaders. Um, to be able to say, yeah, I have this power. These are my people, but I, I don't possess them. They are the gift of the father to me. I am the steward of these people and these responsibilities. And that you have hopefully worked to put together, at least in your staff, a, a group of conf competent people who are confident that you can trust, that have gifts that complement yours. So it's not just the, the, the father so-and-so show that you can delegate and know that things are going to be taken care of. And then whenever there's time to meet, I'm not a big person for meetings. I like my meetings to be efficient. And that you're willing to listen to them. I really try to encourage the parishioners and staff, if you've got a problem, please come talk to me. But as you know, we can see, there are plenty of people who love to complain. I may not listen to your complaint. I'll listen to it. I may not act on it if I think you're just there criticizing. But if you're someone I trust who I know is out there in the arena with me, then I'm going to listen to you and probably uh, take into account and maybe even change the way I'm doing things. But it shows that the people that you've assembled around you as a leader that you collaborate with are people that you trust. Also important to affirm them and their achievements, to give them encouragement. Not always the easiest, uh, but particularly for a younger generation, really need to be affirmed. But we've got to be able to work together. <clears throat> so the virtuous leader, particularly the virtuous priest, is this someone who is a lone ranger? Or is this someone who is willing to listen to, to work with, to collaborate with others, and to share the responsibility? Man, and there's so many traits that go into this. A big one is if you're going to build a community, you're going to be able to have to communicate, uh, particularly as a leader, a leader who is absent, a leader who doesn't know what's going on in his own self and can't communicate it, is not going to be able to do so. And so the leader, particularly in the parish, you've got to, how to communicate your message uh, in the pulpit, in small groups. And, and I think in a real way is communicating vision. I think I put the chapter from Dubay's book on this, that what I can tell a, a pastor or a priest who has vision, who doesn't. And granted, it may be his vision because he is the pastor, but he's able to communicate it to get buy-in and everyone sees it and shares it. I was just um, with over Easter Holy Week with a priest friend of mine as a pastor of a parish who has clear vision. And what he's been able to do over that sustained period of time, everyone's bought into the vision. Uh, and he has so many people do so many things. Uh, he has a, a wonderful team. is because he knows how to communicate it. But along with that, okay, Isaiah, you have a question. Yeah. I, I can't hear you. Microphone. Yeah, I can hear you. What's the question? your question so um, i'm actually recording this audio so i'll repeat your question is like what what is vision is it goals is it uh benchmarks what is the platform and i agree with you bishop baron does a great job of casting his vision i think i'd, I'd read from a biblical perspective that that section from um, dubay's book to talk about what he he has there but yeah it, it is all of these things 
um, I have a vision for the parish. Um, I would like to have this program or that program. Uh, and it can't be something totally nebulous. I want everyone to be saints. Okay, well, how are we going to achieve that? Uh, what does it take to do so? So yeah, vision is not just something which is this ephemeral concept. It has to be very practical and I have to have executable items. Um, and a lot of the times that the vision or things that are going to be priorities to you. Maybe you're really passionate about Ignatian spirituality. Maybe you're very passionate about community. There are others who are passionate about the sacraments. And so not every priest is going to have the same set of talents. Not every priest is going to have the same vision. But you're sent there and working with your people, you're going to not make the parish in your own image. You're going to try to form them in Christ's image. But in the practical things that you do um, and the way that you lead, you're going to lead your, leave your vision, your spiritual DNA in people. Um, so that's a good question. It has to be very, very practical. But with that and being able to communicate, it's easy to say, well, I'm going to go there and communicate my vision. But also it's the ability to communicate and to resolve conflict. Not everything is going to go smoothly. And I can tell you right now, I hate drama. If I realize that I've got some drama going on in the parish, I would prefer not to do anything about it. But the problem is that drama can spill over and cause lots of problems. And so, as Brene Brown says, we have to be ready to rumble with vulnerability uh, to be able to say, yeah, we've got some tensions here uh, to keep your, your finger on the pulse, whether it be with your staff or your parishioners, uh, to be able to listen to all the different sides of the story and to help resolve the conflict. And sometimes the conflict may be with you uh, as the priest. Uh, maybe the people are wrong, but not to get defensive, to be able to say, hey, yeah, I'm going to take this criticism. It's valid. And I'm sorry. Let's let's go ahead and change it. Uh, and to be able to realize that sometimes the conflict comes from misunderstanding. The people don't understand why you're doing what you're doing or why the church does what she does. Uh, and so your responsibility to change that. I remember when I sort of changed some of the musical program in the parish, I had my music director before the mass go up and explain over the course of several weeks why we were doing what we we're doing. Uh, so people could come to understand. Um, you know, I had one parishioner who was came to be represented that some conflict over liturgical things. And she was talking about how she didn't like the fact that we didn't sing a hymn going into church. And I said, well, we don't because the German says we need to do the introit. Oh, she didn't even know that. And so because I was honest and trustworthy, uh, we were able to resolve that. With this comes, and I know this is a kind of a long one, um, accountability. You know, part of being community is that yet you're guiding your vision, but you need to learn there's some reciprocity here. The priest is accountable. The bishop is accountable. You don't want just yes men telling you everything. You want people who are going to be able to see through your stuff uh, and when they see you make a mistake to tell you uh, or to be able to tell you what other people are saying or not insulating you, not putting you in a wall as a leader, that they're going to be honest with you just as you're honest with them and that there can be some accountability. Um, you know, what does that look like? I think we talked about maybe small groups, but it's really important uh, to be able to be that listener uh, and to, to get opinions and to listen to critiques. I think particularly sometimes even with women, women can sniff men's bull pretty quickly. And to have a confident, trustworthy woman or women on staff, because you're going to have women on staff and you better listen to them. Um, and you're going to see how over time, if you communicate well, if you're part of the, 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 the community, just as you leave your mark on them, they're going to leave their mark on you. Uh, the, the children become the father of the father. Uh, and this is a really true thing. I can tell you I'm a priest today because of the people I've served. And many of them, some more than others maybe, have left this particular mark on me. Uh, but I think your parish leaves a mark on you. They can tell, oh, these people are parishioners with, un, under this pastor, but also the parishioners can leave an impact on you. Uh, number six, uh, let's talk about commitment. That's a big one. Uh, leadership of virtuous leaders is the virtue of commitment, which commitment sort of implies virtue because you're committed. You're there every day. You're pressing through. 
And we've heard plenty enough about this in today's world, that there's a lack of commitment. We live in liquid modernity, uh, as the author Pete Davis called it, the age of infinite browsing. Uh, we're just, if we don't like it, I'm not committed to this, I'm going I'm to jump to the next page. Um, and Pete Davis, and I really encourage you to read his book, Dedicated, which came out last year. I think I've talked about it before. He says that we need solid people in a liquid world. We live in a liquid world. So much changing and everything is relative. Liquid modernity. We need to be solid people, committed to places, committed to people, uh, not absent, not liquid ourselves. Um, because the truth is, I think it's a pastor, and I know some bishops will move priests every three to six years. If you're there for a long period of time, I think the length is when, when you're able to confirm the kids you gave First Communion to, or when you start marrying people that you may be taught when they were in catechism, you've been there long enough, hopefully, to have been situated in a certain placeness uh, to really be committed. It's what... um. Pete Davis calls long-haul heroism, long H-A-U-L, not the Hollywood dragon slaying. Well, father sweeps in and he does his big thing and then he leaves. No, he's there. The real heroism is on a daily basis and things that are not glamorous that you don't see on social media. Uh, You can read again. I talked about Bernanosa's The Diary of a Country Priest. It's the commitment in visiting the sick and showing up to hear confessions uh, in being present during the Triduum. It's not situational, it's long-term. The author Wendell Berry talks about the difference between the boomers and the stickers. You know, when there's like, let's say an oil boom, everybody goes there, when the well runs dry, they leave. The sticker is the one who stays, who doesn't, who doesn't leave, who doesn't give up. Uh, and as virtuous leaders, I don't care, things are gonna get bad in your own personal life, in your family life, in your parish, that you avoid discouragement and despair and don't give up. Don't give up on the situation and particularly do not give up on people. We talked about hope. Priests need to be men of hope as leaders. People need to know that you are not going to give up on them. And of course, this is where courage, the virtue of courage and perseverance really comes in. And the number seven, and I think it sort of sums probably most all of this up, is authenticity. Um, uh, so Isaiah just put the comment, what was the, the book I mentioned about commitment? It's called Dedicated by Pete Davis. It was published last year. It's fantastic. I mean, y'all really should read it. Uh, it's just idea of what leadership is and what it means to be an authentic Christian in the world today. And so that's seven, authentic. It, this sort of sums up everything. Be yourself. Don't put, don't put off a fake image. Um, and then let people receive you and love you as you are. Um, and lead by example. That's probably the most important thing. It's not going to be anything you say from the pulpit. It's going to be those daily interactions that people will see that you are a man of integrity, you're a man of authenticity, and they will be inspired. There are going to be certain times of crisis that they'll witness you act, but it's going to be that day-to-day fidelity and commitment and authenticity uh, particularly young people can see through it. If you are not being authentic with them, if you're putting up a front, and trust me too, fellas, y- y'all may not know this, your formators know when you're being inauthentic. Uh, they just do. Um, and, and when you act out of your insecurity. So deal with your stuff, be authentic. Don't be a jerk. Nobody's authentically a jerk. Uh, you may have jerk-like tendencies sometimes, but be yourself and there, there's joy that comes with that and that's what inspires. So to sort of like round this off, it's the moment you've been waiting for. Who do I think, as I was reviewing, I think is one of the best examples of virtuous leadership. And this is not in the church. Uh, Joseph thinks it's General Sherman. No. We talked about like John Paul II as church leadership is a great example of that, with courage and prudence. Um, People would say, I think politically, maybe you could say Thomas More. Uh, and while there are so many different ones, from the moment that I learned about this pers- person, uh, Bishop Al Hughes, he is an inspiration, but that's not who I'm talking about here. Uh, there's another uh, 
you said Bishop Al Hughes, definitely a virtuous leader, definitely a virtuous leader, um, is going to be someone that y'all probably, if y'all paid attention to what I said, and again, I've never known him, I've seen shows about him, I've read about him, is the commander of Easy Company, Dick Winters, who's the head of the paratroopers uh, on D-Day, who went behind the lines, uh, the Stephen Ambrose's book, The Band of Brothers, the HBO 10-part series, The Band of Brothers, I think the best thing ever done on war. Uh, he is the leader. Um, and, and I would show on this video some of the clips, but there's so much stuff out there about Dick Winters, who was young. He was 24 years old. And man, to watch the Band of Brothers or to read his memoirs, let me tell you, a Christian, but so, so inspiring. And we could almost do a class on virtuous leadership by looking at Dick Winters and just seeing the way this man acted. Was he perfect? No. That's the other thing. I mean, part of it is the vulnerability is realizing you're going to make mistakes. But to, to look at this man, uh, there's no way and to watch some of the interviews that came along when he did uh, the Band of Brothers, when he was informed on it, when he was working with Tom Hanks. Um, I mean, a man of character, a man of integrity, a man of honor. And, and if I could be half the man he was, uh, I would be a fantastic priest, uh, a much better priest. So there are different episodes you can find on YouTube um, uh, that, that show examples of his leadership. But there was one article, and I'll post it, that really struck me. It was from that website, uh, The Art of Manliness. Some of you uh, may have, have encountered it. And it's, it's called The Way of the Monastic Warrior, Lessons for Major Dick Winners. Uh, and it goes over all these different traits and characteristics. And you could read it and say, these should be the traits of a priest. And particularly since most priests tend to be introverted uh, with maybe one, hopefully we like to pray and we like to study. Uh, I could, would love to teach a course on, on what this man, uh, Major Dick Winners, teaches us about human virtue. So he is my example. We can, you know, maybe this week, if y'all want to watch uh, the episode, Why We Fight, uh, when they discover the, 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 uh, well, Isaiah likes it too. Is that, is that the, our, Isaiah found another one. Yeah. So y'all feel free to post these different things. Put it in the, um, the classroom queue uh, to see just the way this, this man leads people. Um, I used to make my seminarians watch that. It's, it's really, really good stuff. But I, I want to close, though, in this, this area, just about the final for the model of the church. As much as we like the monastic warrior and we can look at different political and military examples, the real example for leadership, y'all, is Jesus, the good shepherd. Um, that's the example for the shepherd is a leader. And it's going to encompass all the different virtues that we really need to have. First of all, we have to understand that Jesus is the true one good shepherd. We're only the steward. The sheep belong to him. But almost everything that I've talked about can, can be present in this understanding of who a shepherd is. The shepherd has to be present amongst the sheep. Um, he's going to get the smell of the sheep. He's going to guide them. They're going to rub off on him. Francis, Pope Francis has this wonderful talk, which I've alluded to, but it's not in English. I have to translate from the Italian where he talks about the, the shepherd has to be in front guiding the sheep, in the back, watching the, the sheep six, protecting the sheep, or in the middle, caring for the sheep, binding them, uh, healing their wounds. And, and this is what a shepherd is. It is something that is essentially relational. Um, he, he's not there as a director. Sheep, go in that direction. No, it's relational. And relational doesn't mean latus by the side. It means the latus with the long A, which means to carry. So the shepherd is the one who carries the sheep, uh, particularly when the sheep is, is weak. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, it's not a bureaucrat who is in the desk all behind their desk all the time, who dresses a certain way and talks a certain way and doesn't say anything that offends people. No, we don't need bureaucrats. We need shepherds. And most importantly, the shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And that means the shepherd is going to stand in the breach or, between God and the sheep 
always interceding for the sheep, praying for them, but also laying down life by allowing the wolves to attack him, uh, to absorb the attack so that the sheep don't have to have it. And we've talked a little bit about that too. And of course, to realize that not only Jesus is the true shepherd, but as a priest or a pastor, you're getting your ability to shepherd, you're collaborating, you're sharing with the Pope and the bishop. And the respect and obedience that we owe to our Pope and our bishop, if you have resentment and anger and constant criticism, there's no way that you're going to be able to shepherd together. Um, And we need good leadership in our bishops, and there needs to be some real call to, to holiness there uh, in that, that series from Dr. Bob and uh, restoring the glory, the leadership series. I posted it yesterday. There's an interview with Archbishop Sample. And I don't think I've ever heard a bishop talk like this. Um, but he on the, the, this vulnerability of talking about his family of origins and he had this alcoholic father and how the wounds that he sustained. And it wasn't until he finally sort of admitting them and dealing with them that he learned what it meant to really truly be a bishop and a leader. And so he actually, in a convict, and I talked to someone who knows a bunch of priests in Portland, that uh, he, with the priests, have been very honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a perfect leader. This is probably why I am this way. And was just very vulnerable and encouraged them to deal with their own stuff. So at their chrism mass and then the dinner afterwards, 160 priests showed up which is a pretty large part of their 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 um, presbyterate. Where in other dioceses, a lot of times, if there's not a great connection with the bishop, the priest says, ah, they won't show up. These priests want to follow their bishop. Um, and so we pray for that in our own bishops and leaders. Um, but also, you know, if you're a good shepherd, and again, I'm not saying you, there's got to be appropriate vulnerability and honest transparency a good leader is not just going to go emote to everybody. But if you're going to be honest about who you are and where you came from and what does it mean to be a priest and the, the joys and the challenges you face, people will follow you or at least they'll follow Christ in you. And I really think in, <clears throat> that's how we're going to build up trust on the day-to-day basis. Uh, and so it's going to be really the parish priest and their interactions with people and building up trust uh, for a new generation where we're going to find that. Not in the big heroic deeds, but in the small things. And so again, again, there could be all kinds of other traits that we could elucidate here. Uh, but I want to tie it back to this idea of inspiration and closing this and the need that we need people to inspire us. Uh, we need heroes. Whether, yes, uh, there's a healthy suspicion, but we can't have a hermeneutic of suspicion. We've got to be able to be willing to trust people And Pete Davis, he talks about in that book dedicated the need for us to have a pantheon of heroes, people, men and women who are virtuous, that are living or deceased, that we can look up to, that do inspire us, uh, that help us to hopefully inspire confidence in others and uh, the the next generation. So there's my little leadership spiel. Um, Take a few moments for questions before we break. Um, and then we're going to come back next time and we're going to talk about uh, an aspect of the Sequela Christi that we have not discussed yet or not in detail. And then we're going to land the plane finally just by talking about uh, preaching and teaching morality and just different topics that maybe we haven't discussed so far.